Today, I'll be chatting with Dr. Ruchi Gupta and psychologist Lisa Lombard about their research studies focused on anxiety and coping strategies for those managing food allergies. Learn what they're finding, how the research is helping to positively impact food allergy care, what topics they have on their research horizons, and how you, the community, can be actively involved in all of this. Welcome to Exploring Food Allergy Families, a podcast with real talk, relatable conversations, and practical tips focused on navigating the impacts that food allergies have on families, relationships, and mental health. I'm Tamara Hubbard, licensed therapist and the host of Exploring Food Allergy Families. Please remember that while this podcast offers general advice, it should never replace medical or mental health care guidance from your own healthcare team. Joining me to chat today is Dr. Ruchi Gupta and psychologist Lisa Lombard from the Center for Food Allergy and Asthma Research in Chicago. Dr. Ruchi Gupta is a board-certified pediatrician and health researcher that serves as the director of the Center for Food Allergy and Asthma Research. Lisa Lombard is a licensed clinical psychologist that has been providing general psychological services and specialized mind-body treatment to children, families, and adults for over 25 years. As a member of CIFAR, she collaborates on manuscript writing and the development of psychoeducational materials to meet the psychosocial needs of children and families with food allergies. The Center for Food Allergy and Asthma Research aims to find answers and shape policies surrounding food allergy, asthma, and other allergic conditions. CIFAR is a part of the Institute for Public Health and Medicine at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine and Anne and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago. Thank you both so much for joining me today to explore what research is telling us about living with food allergies, especially how it's affecting us emotionally. The Center for Food Allergy and Asthma Research, also known as CIFAR, has been conducting such important research studies to better understand how living with food allergies and asthma truly impacts people's lives and how best to address those needs. Some of the food allergy-specific research topics you guys are exploring are looking at current food allergy policies within schools and assessing the barriers to implementing them exploring food allergy outcomes related to racial differences, and improving food allergy preparedness on college campuses. But what overall themes have you learned about how food allergies impact social and emotional health or quality of life? And was there anything that surprised you with this data? Thank you. Um, well, what we did in a recent survey of caregivers of children with food allergies, as well as adults who have food allergies, was to offer a range of emotions um, that people could endorse to describe their responses to day-to-day -day life with food allergies. And um, some of the findings were what we expected and some were a little bit different. So um, it was quite interesting to look at anxiety as being very high on both the caregiver's list and the caregiver's assessment of what his or her child is um, experiencing. But there were some other feelings too. And I, I guess to answer the question, to run through the list of saying, feeling anxious, being scared, frustrated, overwhelmed, and sad. Those were the um, top caregiver emotions. And then the top child emotions were anxious, frustrated, sad, scared, 
and angry. So what struck me was that um, there was a lot more sadness than I think people commonly recognize. We mm -hmm. certainly recognize that anxiety, the fear, the limitations of behavior and changes in quality of life, but the sadness is, is there. And I think I'd like to be able to explore that a little bit more, both um, research and uh, clinically. And then it was also interesting that caregivers um, have a higher, a fairly high level of feeling scared or afraid on behalf of their child, sure. whereas children are not as scared. And I think there's um, some of that is intuitive, and we know that, um, and we know that that varies across age groups as well in terms of when we feel the most fearful on behalf of our kids who have food allergies. Were you able, so in the study, were you asking questions specific to specific scenarios um, and asking questions for specific ages to get a sense of what kids were scared mostly of, or I'm sorry, I think you said parents were mostly scared, but even sadness, what they felt sadness about either the parents or the kids? Well, that's a great question, but unfortunately we didn't delve into it in that um, to that level of detail, which would be a great next step to see what some of those scenarios are. Um, I think from some other research, we do understand that a lot of the um, times when kids are moving away from the family and the household are, are times that the, the scared or anxious feelings start to grow. Sure. So moving off to preschool, kindergarten, um, being more autonomous, being part of a sports team and going off with um, the athletic group to restaurants after a game, that kind of thing. Those are moments um, when parents certainly feel more afraid, uh, but it would be great to have some specific social scenarios. That actually previews uh, a new study that we're getting off the ground and we'll be um, developing over the summer and looking for participants. And that's related to social situations that older teenagers and young adults are encountering as they manage food allergies. So what are some of those um, situations for, for youngsters going off to college or being away at school um, in terms of the social situation? Because that's so important. So you mentioned that you were surprised by the sadness being more of a, a prominent factor mm. or a feeling in this study. Um, I know in previous studies, you guys have looked at quality of life impacts as well. And I think from those previous studies, it was mainly focused on caregiver quality of life. Am I correct? Or was it quality of life for kids and, and those, those managing the allergies as well? Yeah, there are both. Um, it's usually adults, though. Um, describing what their child's quality of life is. It, it's a lot harder, as you well understand, to yeah. ask children um, about this and to um, find populations of kids, especially younger kids, to talk about it. Um, but I think that would be a great um, addition to our understanding of this all, because kids and kids in school settings are really at the forefront of this. Absolutely. And of course, as a family therapy trained therapist, I am thinking of things like how are interactions between parents helping or, you know, impacting kids' ability to feel about their food allergy or, mm -hmm. you know, go through life with their food allergies and what their motto is with their food allergies. Of course, all these things that I lay here and wonder about at night <laughs> when I think about these topics and, yeah. you know, the emotional aspects of living with food allergies. So um, that's why I'm always so excited by the research that CIFAR does because you guys seem to get that this is an area that needs tons more research. 
Yeah, well, thank you. And I think you're right that it's complex um, yeah. and it keeps changing. And we, there's also a dynamic component that you're describing between parents and children. And it's a circle. So there's no um, central start or stop point. It depends on where we cast our lens, um, what we see. And um, kids are really sponges and are, re are absorbing and reacting to parents and yeah. parents in turn are um, trying to parent the best they can with some um, constraints. And so they add something to that mix and it keeps on going. Absolutely. And I think, you know, getting back to the fact that you guys found a lot of sadness so far in what you've seen from the data from, from the studies, um, that those kinds of emotions, I know you mentioned you were kind of surprised by that. I would, I would wonder if those kinds of emotions that seem very heavy, you know, the sense of loss or um, trauma feelings or sadness are ones that aren't talked about because we so much want our kids and those managing food allergies to feel empowered and to feel ready to, you know, approach life with food allergies and not let it stop them. But as you and I know, both in our fields, it's important to still process those feelings and address them and right. help people to understand mm -hmm. that that is a part of this. But yeah, I, I, I'm so thrilled by your, by your research. It's just always so interesting to me. Oh, thank you. But I think you're right that there's um, a range of feelings. And we, we did try to also capture some of those other either neutral to positive experiences that might be coming from managing food allergies. So uh, things that look and ask about resilience or what are their coping strategies, um, those are also really critical areas that we want to understand better so yeah. that we can also begin to develop and um, study interventions that's exactly what I'm wondering too. How do you see the data from this particular study that looked at the psychosocial needs of children and families with life-threatening allergies? How do you see the, the data that you're receiving from this and the ongoing data you'll receive as you roll out additional pieces of this study impacting or changing patient care or patient education? Yeah, well, it's really interesting and really important. Um, a full 71% of our respondents indicated that they are interested in trying an intervention that relates to psychosocial support. So we're talking about treating the whole child or whole family, yeah. um, which includes the psychosocial or quality of life component. Yeah. And knowing that, we also then asked about um, what things would be comfortable for people to begin to explore. People predominantly seem to want something that's delivered or allows them to have social contact and connection. Okay. So it may be more group work. It might be something that's a hybrid version of a traditional um, first appointment followed by some group sessions that may be um, telehealth. Yep. Certainly we're, we're operating now in a way that I know I'm finding there's a lot more um, ways to uh, provide services than face-to-face -face in, uh, in an individual or family setting. So, Very true. Yeah. yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of exploration and some um, development of some new ideas. Yeah. Uh, could be behavioral and biobehavioral technology that's just a support that provides wellness services, information, psychoeducation, um, busy families. I find really are finding it hard to come after school to an yeah. appointment or on the weekend. And so I think we have to deliver mental health and well-being services in a broad variety of ways. Yeah. But that social piece seemed to be very important. Caregivers were also interested in 
types of experiences that might involve learning skills like progressive muscle relaxation, breathing regulation, guided imagery. And I think those just really need to be explored and fleshed out what would be the most comfortable and effective yeah. for different kids and their families. So it sounds like the data is suggesting that caregivers, caregivers really want to help their kids through these experiences and through the stress and anxiety or feelings they may feel, and that both the, the kids and the families want to connect with others that are experiencing the same things, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. well as connecting and learning that information and in maybe more of an experiential format as well. I think you've summarized it really nicely. Thank you, Tamara. You're right. Um, and I think there's that's all based um, on a fundamental need to have good, solid medical information and valid um, information and exchange of information. Yeah. Um, because most of the families are reporting that they really rely on that. So from their providers, from um, reputable sources, um, and then we can kind of expand the circle out for them to get that um, mutual support and care from other families, yeah. as well as being able to care for their child and feel more effective. Absolutely. I, I can definitely see the need for that and why families would want that too. So, um, And I think you, you basically talked about the next steps with this current study, um, that you'll be looking at different layers of these feelings and maybe more specifically Mm-hmm. Yeah, trying to make sense of any patterns and whether or not parents and their children have matching experiences would be a great thing to explore as well. Absolutely. So I'd love to know what you think about how allergy-informed psychologists or counselors can play a role in food allergy patient care. Oh, they're so critical uh, to patient care. I mean, I think one of the, the biggest um, issues in food allergy is that we often don't help families because we, we don't have the data, we don't have the research to know, you know, their severity of their food allergy, yeah. right? So pretty much when you get diagnosed with a food allergy, um, we tell you, you know, of course you can have anywhere from mild symptoms, you know, if you ingest, accidentally ingest the food to life-threatening, right. you know? And so um, I think just knowing that even of a, as a parent of a child with food allergy, it causes a lot of stress and anxiety because you don't, first of all, always have control over um, your food and any kind of cross contact or exposures. And then two, you don't really know what that may produce if you, your child does have an accidental ingestion. So I think, you know, as a, as a food allergy researcher, it's kind of one of our biggest missions is, is there any way we can help give families uh, a little bit more information, you know, because the other thing is anywhere you go uh, and drop your child off from summer camps to after school programs, the first question I always get is, well, how severe is this food allergy? Yes. Yep. That's a common question. And that's not an easy question to answer accurately, you know, for any family really. Exactly. Because they haven't gotten that guidance. So families are making that decision on their own. And they're usually just going off of past reactions, you know, and past experiences. So, um, so I think I think that makes is what makes this so challenging for families. So having um, access to um, a psychologist or or care or understanding how to deal with these situations um, is just is just such a big part of living with food allergy, and it should be offered uh, to all families. So that um, that connection and that partnership. Yeah. I think really what we're learning 
is so essential. And I think that it would be beneficial not only just for the families, but for allergists as well. I mean, it, they have another allied healthcare provider, you know, helping them address the whole patient or the whole family, as Lisa was saying, um, and not even just at the time of diagnosis, but we think about transition periods in our lives, going to different schools, um, you know, getting into the teen years, transitioning to college, and there inherently might be additionally elevated anxiety and stress. And so having, I can imagine having, I mean, being obviously an allied, an allied healthcare provider that's allergy informed myself, I do that kind of work with families. But um, I, I could think that, you know, allergists having a relationship with these allied healthcare providers would be beneficial for them as well. Oh, tremendously, because they're having to, to answer these questions or try to deal with it as best as they can yeah. in their short visits. And this, these, are, these are conversations that require more time and more attention. So yeah, yeah it would be beneficial for everyone, for yeah. sure. Yeah, I'm excited to see what your research in this particular study that you guys are working on currently will um, come up with as far as even maybe different kind of models or ways in which allied healthcare providers such as psychologists and counselors can collaborate. Would it be through education offered at the allergist office? Would it be, you know, being available for new patients? You know, I'm sure there's different ways, but I'm so curious if, if that's, is that a piece of what you'll be looking at in addition to what kind of material or education patients need? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, we need to answer all those questions. And, and it's not the same for each patient. So who's interested in what? And um, how do we address the needs of, of different families, of kids with different age groups? You know, there's, there's a lot to take into account, different resources. So um, yes, we, it's not going to be a one size fits all by any means, but yeah, um, we'll get, get more answers. Yep, I love that the one size the one size doesn't fit all kind of a, a model um, is an area of focus. It seems like in the allergy space right now, even with allergists, it's individualized care, and I think that that's so important. And this plays a huge role in that, I believe too. So, is there anything new that CFAR has going on as far as new research on the horizon? Any new programs evolving? And then, how can the community help with your research research needs and research efforts? So that is a great question, and thanks for asking. Um, CFAR is really expanding um, in the biggest way on our community side. And so I am just thrilled that Lisa Lombard decided to join our group. And um, I think we've always had an interest in more psychosocial research, uh, just because we keep hearing it as um, a huge need from families. And uh, we were doing the best we could, <laughs> but having someone who actually is an expert in that area join our team is going to help uh, us expand that research uh, in such a such a positive way. Yeah. So, you know, the other thing we're expanding, um, which I'm just thrilled about, is our community arm. So the community is one of our three big pillars. So we have, you know, obviously we do a lot of public health research, a lot of um, putting out numbers for prevalence and, and data science. Um, and then our second pillar is really clinical research. Uh, and then our, our third, um, and I would say, you know, most important pillar is our community arm. And we are really, really working hard to expand this. We have a new um, leader for this space and we are bu building a community board. So if anyone's listening and wants to join, you don't have to live in Chicago. We just really want to hear the community's voice. So that's really uh, one, one big piece of what we're trying to build. And what that community board would do is help us 
figure out what are the main community research areas that we need to address. Uh, and, you know, we've done a lot with schools and policies and labeling. And really, I love just hearing from families because they tell us, you know, where the areas of greatest need are. Yeah. Uh, other studies, you know, that are on the horizon, yeah, people just c- get come to me and, and tell me that we're, there's holes. And I yeah. appreciate it because we found out there was a big hole for younger infants, like um, preschool, daycare age. So we're um, developing materials uh, to improve their lives in daycare and training. Um, same way people came and said, you know, you're, you're missing this whole college transition space. Mm-hmm. So we're working hard to develop some initiatives and um, videos and uh, orientation material for colleges. And we're working with a lot of organizations. And we work on, on many of these things with FAIR. Um, I know that uh, Allergy and Asthma Network, we are just working together to do some uh, Chicago mental health for asthma and food allergy families. Um, so it is, it is really great. I mean, I could go on and on about all the great food allergy organizations out there and yeah. how they are just doing tremendous work. And we're trying to bring um, all of them together in with us to um, really move this field forward. And I, you know, I, I am just so, so grateful that, um, that we are so strong as a community. It's so, so, yeah, it's really true. It takes the community input to really make sure that you're spending your, your time and research on, on the areas that are going to have the greatest benefit to the community, right? Absolutely. That's exactly right. And then, you know, just during this whole period of time we're in right now with COVID-19, yeah. the uh, topic of food insecurity and food allergies uh, came so up. So important. So now we're, we're working with the Food Equality Initiative. Um, we're putting in a grant right now together, but we're working on um, better understanding how many people this may affect and how we can do to uh, improve their access to safety yeah. and their quality of life. So uh, I, yeah, I could go on for an hour about all, <laughs> the, all the initiatives, but I think the bottom line is if there are issues that any of the listeners think need to be addressed, please, mm-hmm. please reach out because um, we do our best to partner with anyone who has a passion for an area and, and try to help make it happen and yeah. improve the lives of families and kids living with food allergies. I love that. What is the website um, that people can go to to keep an eye on what research projects you have going on um, and how they might be able to submit information or suggestions for future research topics or even take part in any of the studies that you have going on? Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. So it's uh, CFAR, so it's the letter C F A A R dot Northwestern dot edu. Perfect. Uh, and that's that's our our home base. And then you know from there they can definitely reach out and contact us. But they can find out a lot of our current studies and current initiatives that they can get involved in. Wonderful. So important. Want to make sure that the community knows exactly how they can keep track of what you're doing and also get involved where they need to be. So um, before we end, I've got one final question that I ask all of my guests. So I'm going to ask both of you. The question is, living an empowered life with food allergies means what? And Lisa, I'll ask you first. Okay, thank you. Well, it's not my own answer. I, I recently rewatched the um, Mr. Rogers film, yes. and um, I really was was struck again by a, a reference that he made 
something to the effect of if it's mentionable, it's manageable. And um, I really think that's true about the experiences and the feelings and the problems related to food allergies. So once we can talk about them and a family or a child or a parent can identify them and describe them, we're going to figure out ways to manage them because that kind of takes some of the power out of it. And so I, I feel like that's a way to get power back is to describe it. Oh my gosh. I love that both as a food allergy parent and a counselor that works with those managing food allergies. That is so, so true and so well stated. Um, okay. No pressure here, Ruchi, then. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a competition. Cool. Can I just say ditto? <laughs> what she said. Yeah. No, living an empowered life with food allergies means what? So I am actually going to go back to research because um, Outside of just what I think, I can tell you as we, we know how much anxiety and fear goes along with food allergies, one question we actually did ask uh, teenagers with food allergy was, you know, has it done anything good for you? You know, do you feel like anything good has come of this? Or pretty much what you're saying, how has it empowered you? And the two things that stuck out the most to me that they said were uh, they are better advocates for themselves. In general, food allergy makes you become a strong advocate for yourself. And I think this goes over into other aspects of your life, which um, is just such a great skill we would all want our children to have. Mm -hmm. And the second uh, big thing was that they they are more empathetic. So they Mm -hmm. are more supportive of others with any medical conditions or conditions at all. And and that's that kindness. Yes. And like, if you had to wish two things on um, these kids or any children at all, it would probably be both of those being empowered and advocating and being kind. Well, and I think too, it's not just those qualities that they have that are, are so wonderfully empowering, but the fact that they're able to see that there are positives to come from this too. Yes. Yes, Mm -hmm. there are. And, uh, and I don't want everyone to lose sight of that because Absolutely. obviously this is not easy, nope. but with our amazing community and um, support we get from each other, uh, I think the uh, biggest thing is everyone should know there are organizations you can reach out to and people and, and groups, and um, we're very fortunate to have that. And yes, and students told us themselves that there are um, skill sets they learn by having a food allergy that that do have a positive influence on I your love life. that. I love that when we hear straight from them and they're able to say those things, that language, and they can share that with us. So um, I want to thank you both so much for joining me today thank to you. discuss the research that CIFAR has been working on and letting us know a bit more about the data you're finding because it's so helpful. Thank you, Tamara. Thank you for the invitation to join. Absolutely. Anytime. A standing invitation always. And until we connect for the next episode, be good to yourselves and take care. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of Exploring Food Allergy Families. Be sure to subscribe via your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss future ones. And if you're looking for an allergy-informed behavioral health care provider or for additional resources on any of the topics discussed in these podcasts, visit the Food Allergy Counselor directory and website at www.foodallergycounselor.com.